1: Hi, jessica how are you
2: i'm good it's nice to meet you
1: yeah i'm at i'm at my uh church office and it's funny because it's usually really quiet but it's like okay well the day i'm recording something like a few a few of the you know staff kids are here like almost like oh, just how it works i guess
2: <laughs> i i co-edited a book with a colleague here and so i'm using this old office so it looks like i don't read
1: <laughs> well that that is certainly not uh the impression i have of you so you are totally totally safe.
2: Right. <laughs> okay, so tell, tell me about your book and why it is that you're excited to put it together.
1: Yeah. You know, so for, for me, it, it just felt like the book that I've always wanted to read of just sort of like thinking about African-American literature in light of and in conversation with um, just, yeah, Christian theology and our faith and what it means to follow Jesus and like merging those worlds and how they uh, enrich one another. And, you know, I just like when I I remember the first time coming to like some of the books that I love and some of the books that I cover in my book like um you know Native Son or Invisible Man and just reading them and like just thinking like wow like what like like how 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 do I think about this as a Christian like what is it like how how does the gospel speak to these sort of circumstances characters and dynamics like what is what would Jesus say to Bigger Tom, Thomas and you know all those sorts of things and so uh for me the book is a chance to kind of do that and um I just think of like kind of the call and response dynamic between you know the concerns in African American literature and uh, the the truths of of Christianity and like how how for um, a lot of our national history, obviously those truths have been suppressed. Right? There's been uh, um, manifestations of Christianity that that have not spoken to those things intentionally or uh, out of blindness blindness. Um, but there are answers and i think our faith is enriched by looking at the questions of those authors and uh, and vice versa so so that's really like it was just the book that i've always wanted wanted to read and it feels like the only book that at this point i'm really like engaged and qualified to kind of write on and so that's that's kind of where where it's come from so a lot of the
2: great african american writers that i'm familiar with many of them were protesting the faith right i mean especially 1920s to 40s weren't they seeing it as the white faith and really disassociating themselves from it, is that right?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. I mean, I think you see that in, you know, for example, Native Son, there's, uh, you know, when Bigger's arrested, there's sort of the, the, you know, his mom wants the preacher to come and the preacher comes and like kind of with the preacher, there's this long whole thing of what the preacher says and and Bigger's like, you know, what, like, what is this? Does it make any sense? And I think that's right. Kind of trying to show some of the, um, you know, just kind of the impotent nature of of what is presented as as Christianity to people in this sort of suffering. So I definitely think that is, that is a component of it. But then on the other hand, you know, you have somebody like, Baldwin. Who you know, despite all of his you know prophetic critiques, still is like holding out this this hope and this sense of like, hey, if we really return to this ideal of love, um, you know, that then then there's hope here, you know. And so, so I think it's sort of both. But I think even those people that even those authors that you know were strongly protesting sort of these uh, Christianity as a suffocating force towards African Americans, you know, those are critiques that we really we. Need, really need to hear and really need to enge- and, and need to engage with and we're uh become better and more whole in our faith and our understanding through through that sort of engagement. You know, so so I try to do both of those and I know we're going to talk about you know Hurston a little bit and I think she's kind of in that category too, where it's like you know this was not though she grew up around around the faith this was not uh, something that she uh, claimed or or you know in some ways even looked on necessarily favorably, but I think there's still lessons you know from her work that can enrich how we how we live as disciples.
2: Yeah, well let's yeah, let's talk about Hurston. So, I dove into Zora Neale Hurston because just like James Baldwin when I was in graduate school, I actually created this list of southern literature that dealt with religious themes. And so Go Tell It on the Mountain, Moses Man of the Mountain, they they almost seem prophetic like outside of their mm-hmm. time. There's just so much universal, there's these enduring questions there that I don't think I wrestled with even, you know, 15 years ago. Um, that I'm wrestling with now. So when you look at someone like Hurston, for example, her dad was a Baptist pastor, Mm -hmm. right? And so she grew up with this, as you said, the call and response. I mean, really the way that I've come to understand her work is almost like it's saying, you know, can I get a witness? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So what is her relationship with the faith that she grew up with, or maybe how did, how did that look later in her life?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, she has explicit kind of disavowals and, you know, problems with problems with the faith, you know, but but what I think is really um, fascinating about her in that novel is just the the even the desire to approach scripture and to like use scripture to to recast and tell this story. And I know, you know, from um, from seeing, you know, some portions of, of your work that um, on that I, I thought was outstanding um, is just sort of the prophetic imagination that you talk about. And just so just uh, to me, I think there's something really instructive that even somebody who's saying, um, you know, I'm outside of this is still coming to this text and saying, I'm going to participate in this. And there, there's really something there. So when I think about that novel in particular, I really think about, you know, what it means to participate in scripture. And there's sort of obviously she has continuity and some pretty strong discontinuity as well. But I think like even both of those things are really fascinating, really instructive and I think just like the the audacity to do that, like says something about the value of of the of the scriptural text and like why we need to imagine why we need to think question, consider questions like, why do we, like, how do we participate in God's story? Like, what, what does it mean to step into, you know, the Exodus and this idea of God, who, who wants to set people free and God, who's at work in the world. And though she answers some of those in some ways that are really different, they're still just asking that question is so crucial and so important.
2: Do you find her work? I'm afraid that people are going to find her work blasphemous. Yeah. Like if I can set
1: up
2: yeah. context. I mean, She's writing this novel in 1939. And so people a lot of times read it from our perspective and they see connections with the Nazis. And was she writing against fascism? Was she writing for a Mussolini type character? Um, was she writing against God? I mean, where where would you place her? I don't I don't think it's a, a fiction work that you could just hand someone in a congregation and say, This is gonna lead you to Jesus.
1: Right. She talks about, I think it's in the 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 little foreword, like um, uh, you know. Africa has its mouth on Moses, so she's you know she's she's like kind of breathing in um, just these kind of mythologies and this sort of folklore tradition um, uh, regarding Moses and sort of like this real big kind of blend of the Exodus narrative in the biblical sense and also just in a folkloric sense. And, you know, she couldn't write the novel the way she wrote it without really knowing the actual like biblical text. Like it's, it's pretty impressive. Like I was sort of challenged myself. I was like, wait a second. Like I, I need to go, I need to go back and reread, reread, you know, Exodus and numbers and, and like, you know, she's, she's really like working at a close level. Um, but at the same time, there's so many major departures um, and sort of, you know, God is minimal in the novel um, Moses is really the figure of power, um, she makes changes in terms of, you know, even, um, uh, you know, kind of the allegorical component of it, like Israel, you know, they don't really, uh, they don't they don't really know God. So Moses is like the missionary to the people, like there's these really significant changes that I think would throw people for a loop. And to me, I think she's kind of asking, it, it feels like she's making all of these changes for, for many reasons, but I feel like one of the things that I take away is sort of this end component, um, in the novel where Moses is reflecting. And it's sort of this idea that liberation doesn't come through one person, but it has to be internalized. One person can't set a people free. A people have got to desire this from their heart. Everyone has to participate in this work. And I feel like that's sort of what she's sort of the, um, one of the driving themes that she's getting at is like, let me retell this story about this one figure that liberates and let me push this and and make this provocative to try to tell the story about like we've got to set our, ourselves free. And uh, and, you know, that's an interesting thing. And I think there's some components there that we can say, you know, what, there's some there's truth there that. um That we need to bring into conversation um, and under you know the 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 apostolic deposit of our faith so that's kind of what i go to i go to that real section which i know i think you you touch on as well in your chapter in in a really helpful way too
2: right you you've mentioned a couple times my chapter is on prophetic imagination and so i'm definitely looking at uh, this revelation in which someone becomes a prophet by receiving a different way of viewing the world than they had previously. And this revelation is what frees them to then invest their power for the powerless. Right. And that's what prophets do in scripture. And of course I think that's what Hurston is doing. But as you just mentioned, the difficulty I have, the tension I have, and maybe this is just like the philosopher coming out in me, but you're a theologian. So probably the same idea is like who frees Moses? Yeah. There's yeah. so much in the narrative that troubles me because it's like, I believe in internal liberation. I believe in freedom of the soul to then help other people be free. I don't believe I can free myself. Right, And that's where it's, she gets on such sticky ground. How can we read her uh, profitably when it seems like that's such a disjunction from what scripture tells us about freedom?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think we just have to mark that out as a a major, a major, you know, place of discontinuity, a major place where we would just say, yeah, like we, we, we don't, we can't go there. There's no, there's no freedom there, right? There's no, there's no life there. So if we start, if we recognize we're starting uh, with our understanding of freedom in a different sense, then I think there's some profitable things we can take from the novel.
2: This podcast is sponsored by Brazos Press. Brazos Press publishes books that creatively draw upon the riches of the Christian story to deepen our understanding of God's world and inspire faithful reflection and engagement. A Brazos press book that I recommend is On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books by Karen Zwalla Pryor. In the book, Pryor helps readers learn to love life, literature, and God through their encounter with great writing. Get 40% off and free shipping at bakerbookhouse.com with code READING.
1: Um, you know for me like I think about the stories I mentioned like the participation angle and yeah you know I just think of like um, I, I think like the Exodus story is something historically that like people have participated in in a lot of different ways they've reappropriated it in a lot of different ways and I feel like her her novel helps us to just say hey here's the way like the fact that she makes the allegory to sort of put um, uh, African peoples in the place of Israel, which is obviously something that is a major part of um, the Black Christian tradition, right? That's how it starts, but I think it, it's a it's such a helpful counter to the way so much of white Christian denominations historically put themselves in the place of Israel, right? And in the place of Israel but not as a sufferers but as like God's chosen people, you know that sort of supersessionism that uh, Willie Jennings talks about in The Christian Imagination and so she's countering that and I think just by the fact that she does that, like to me it's like this book is so valuable it, and and she she does it in some really cool ways where like even just like in some humorous ways too I think it's the other thing I like about the novel, there's some humor there so like, you know, when Moses is kind of like arguing and beefing with um you know with with his kind of rival um related to pharaoh you know they're sort of like you know i can beat you up and like you know that i you know your mama knows and all this sort of stuff it's just it's just fun and so she lets i think she lets uh through vernacular um through that folklore tradition she um she helps uh the descendants of african peoples see themselves in the exodus story and which is uh you know, the opposite of the way historically, we've been told to see ourselves in the biblical story, but only in this lens, not not as the people that God cares for, that God is going to deliver. We had to do that for ourselves. And so because I see that as such a strong tie, I'm, I'm very um, inclined to sort of just like recognize like the goodness of the novel. But I, but I think all the the things that you're bringing up are, are really important. And I think we have to acknowledge those. Otherwise, we can't see the novel. You know, we can't benefit from it in, in the sort of fullness that we want to.
2: You're definitely highlighting what I find the reason I keep coming back to the novel, because even with all of its problems, theologically and the strongman figure that especially at the end, I start having a a real antagonism to like I stopped liking Moses about halfway Mm. through the book. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, I really enjoy it because it's the dehumanization that happens where a story of the Bible became too familiar to me that it almost um, wasn't true anymore. Like I, I made yeah. it by making it too familiar. And then the way she breaks it up, she makes it funny. She brings it to life. You get to see this connection between Moses and African-American preachers, between the Israelites and the slaves in America. Like she really changes the way we see ourselves in the narrative. And and that to me is worth, worth picking up the book and yeah,
1: um, totally.
2: that defamiliarization process.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like that that is so, you know, and I, and I think it's sort of like, you know, for readers to kind of wrestle with some of the major points of discontinuity that we we're talking about earlier, I think. It, you know, un- being prepared to understand that ha- having a way to kind of grapple with that allows will allow a reader to to enjoy and to like to experience some of what you're talking about, you know, and I can see where that, that the sort of major changes, major shifts, shifts, the sort of decentering of God, all these sort of things would be sort of that first stumbling block that, you know, if you can't um, if you don't know how to how to work with that, you know, you, you're not going to step into some of some of the the beauty that I think is in the novel as well.
2: Well, and Alice Walker, when she was trying to revitalize Hurston within like the um, the great works of African American literature and kind of bring her into the fold, and she said that every black writer needed to read Moses, mm. the novel, which is an astonishing claim because yeah. many other African American writers didn't find anything worthwhile in the novel, and even Hurston herself said, "Totally, I, I think I messed up writing this book." Uh, but what Hurston seems to do different than than some other authors when she's protesting and she's not only protesting just race but she's protesting or like the ways that you falsely categorize race but she's protesting the ways you falsely categorize people ever
0: mm,
2: mm. right i mean you see this way that she's not just there's not an allegory it's not an allegory between mm. rights in america it goes so much deeper than yeah. that the way that we just judge one another. And that we're always going to find a reason to say, these people are better than these people.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and certificate programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu/admit.
1: Yeah, and you see that with the with Miriam um and Aaron, there's yeah, and I think um it's interesting too cuz this was um when, what was the exact date of this release?
2: 1939. Yeah, I mean there's like marching into Poland and hating the Polish, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So 39, so 10 years before that, you have Passing by Nella Larson, which deals with some of these ideas of the the colorism dynamic, the sort of like the in-house discrimination um, uh, among African-Americans that you see that. And, I, and she captures in, the, in, in Moses a little bit with sort of like M- Miriam and all of that stuff, which, which I think, you know, fits with some of her, her philosophy of like, you know, talking about the issues of race, but also like understanding the ways that this permeates beyond that, you know? Um, and I think that's pretty fascinating too. And again, to me, that's another place where it's like, well, here, here's some of the like, the fascinating, fruitful kind of thematic realities in this novel that, that are there, you know, when we could pass, if we can navigate some of the other, some of the other challenges too.
2: Yeah. I think that's what makes the novel to me more universal than anything, because it's yeah. nature that we're never going to stop judging one another. We're never going to stop trying to create false hierarchies with one mm. another, just dependent on, on where it is and how we create these, whether it's gender yeah. or class or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
2: So what about so I'm thinking about Christian readers again, and mostly when I think of Christian readers, I imagine like I'm trying to talk to those outside of of Catholicism. I'm I'm normally talking to those who have been raised in kind of these fundamentalist homes who have not read a lot of literature and maybe are also very uncomfortable with the fantastical, the magical, the mythical. And that's what Hurston does in this text Uh, What would you say to like if you were talking to those in your congregation about why to read this book, what would you say about their fears concerning the way that Hurston deals with magic in this text?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would just say, just do what you do with Harry Potter. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, what's the big deal? Like, um, you know, like, uh, um, you know, we, we love Harry, we love Hermione, we love, you know, all this stuff. So, you yeah. know, so I think it's the same category, you know, if we can't, um, if we can't, if we can't do that with, with this, that's, that's sort of like trying to think through, you know, the real experiences of just, of, of, of not just people in America, mm-hmm. but just sort of humanity and just sort of like, um, in, in those sort of realities, if we can't, if we can't do that, then, you know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to say. So I, so I guess to answer your question, I can't help. (laughs) I I cannot help. (laughs) I just think it's an, you know, I I guess maybe, maybe the more helpful thing. And I I hope I don't mean that in any like mean way. I I think maybe the more helpful thing is just, you know, we're, we're a novel is a novel. It's not a one-for-one theological text, even if they're like working you know, even if they're working with with the scriptures, like we can recognize the places where, like, oh, I, they're coming from this angle, that that obviously does not fit with with what we know historically of our faith, and I think we can just recognize that for what it is, right? Like, we're not we're not going to come to this novel and begin preaching messages from it. Um, we're we're coming to uh, to engage, um, yeah, human experience, right? The way the way we do with with story. Um, and so I think we come in that perspective. I think, uh, then then we can we can deal with that. And I think you know, it's all just a realization, like you know, um, yeah, we, we like I'll, I'll take I'll take the novels that deal with the magic and the fantastical versus the stories of the novels. that want to act like the only thing that, that the world is a closed space. Right. But that that, that there is no there's no movement of the divine or there's no movement of any of these things. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely take take the fantastical and the mythical over that any day.
2: Why would you recommend it if you had a chance? I mean, I don't know what you've written on it because I haven't gotten to read your chapter. But why would you recommend people read the novel?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think to to me, uh, I continue to just go back to like it, it is such a reminder that we participate in the story of God and we participate in the story of Scripture. And this is Hurston's vision and Hurston's sort of like imagination of what that participation looks like, what we learn from that participation. Uh, in some ways, it's her it's her corrective on some of interpretations of how we participate. But I think just the step into that world to like imagine like wow, like yeah, what, what would it be like if if uh, if the enslaved people of Israel were like, we're kind of sort of mapped onto um, African-American history and spoken, spoke the way we speak and like dealt with these sort of things like that step, I think like helps us as disciples. And it, it forces us to, um, yeah, just to consider like where we would put ourselves in that story, because at the end of the day, we are going to put ourselves in some place in the story. And I think it's a good way for us to to imagine that in a healthier sense. It prods us. It, I, think it, it, I think if some novels like kind of outright instruct, um, this is like a prodding text. Like this this forces us to ask the questions that I think we need to ask. And I think attached to it, because she's working with the Exodus in such close relation to African-American experience, it becomes a road to consider how African-Americans have participated in scripture, which I think is instructive to the whole church.
2: I, I have two final questions for you, just based on what you said. One, I was thinking about all the ways that people don't see themselves in the story, that there have been a lot of criticism that says this is more of like a blackface farce, or mm. that she's actually making fun of African Americans in the way that she writes their dialect. Unlike *Jonah's Gourd*, which mm. is more um, sympathetic with characters and more playful, and this one seems to be making fun of the
1: characters. Mm. Do
2: you find that in the text or no?
1: I don't, but I would have to think about that some more. Yeah, yeah, I would have to think about that some more. I, I didn't, I didn't sense that. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's actually a good question to consider.
2: Yeah, whether or not people see them. In yeah. State.
1: Yeah.
2: So, and then the second one is whether or not you think that this is a blasphemous move. These kind of retellings. A lot of Christians, when they see mm-hmm. you know, retellings of scripture, they they go one or two ways. They'll see, yeah. you know, that you've made a film adaptation and think. That's blasphemous. You shouldn't do that to the story. You're changing the way it was written. You're taking liberties with the text. And others are, thank you for bringing it to life for me. Mm. I had stopped being able to reimagine the story.
1: I, I so maybe to a fault, lean to kind of like a sympathetic reading of everything. So that's a personal problem that I have that I'd probably need to address and work through. But on an, another sense, I just think of like, I don't expect, you know, especially if someone who's like, you know, this is not my tradition. This is not my faith. I don't ascribe to these things. So I don't expect them to reverence these things the way, the way I do or the way we in the church do, though we do desire that and pray for that. Um, I I do tend to lean towards like, okay, if you're going to engage with this, like what, what reflection does this push me to? And does that reflection push me in the direction of the faith? Does it, does it make me return to the scriptures? And I think this is a novel that does like, I, I read this and was just like, she knows, like she, she has really worked with the, with the scriptures and like, she is making me go back to the scriptures. And I think if that's the sort of end impact, then it's like, okay, I can, I can see some fruitfulness there, you know. Uh, you know, without discounting her her own her own prerogative and uh, you know, perspective and disposition. But I can I can see uh, the fruit that's coming out of that. So so for that I'm thankful. You know, and so that that's how I process that.
2: That's that's actually how I judge novels too. I'm usually more sympathetic, but I'm always trying <laughs> to search for the fruit of after this reading experience. Where do I go? What what do I look for? And if it has borne fruit in me or whether it's repulsed me. I mean, there's some novels where I just kind of feel sick and gross after reading them. Yeah. Like I haven't done anything uplifting and it doesn't have to be a feel-good story. I mean, Flannery O'Brien right. goes against like the instant uplift. It doesn't have to be that. Mm. Um, but at the same time, what kind of fruit does it bear? Does it bear fruit in suffering? You feel the suffering of the characters. You understand the grit and grime in the world. Um, but you see this ray of hope or you see this, there's a there's a comedic end of the story. There's a happy ending yeah. even after mm-hmm. the novel closed or not Mm -hmm. right and for Hurston I feel like the story ends but you still have that sense that that there's a truth to look for and to find Mm -hmm.
1: liberating Mm -hmm. yes that's well said
2: so so tell people about your book before we close out just where what's it going to be and where can we find it what's the title
1: talking books uh a theological reading of african-american literature um so that that'll probably shift and change at least the subtitle probably um if not the title outright but um yeah so you know just working with you know great african-american novelists or writers rather of the 20th century so you know baldwin wright morrison um um yeah, Hurston, and uh, and just kind of looking like reading their stories uh, through the lens of faith, like how how those novels, how those themes, how those writers push us to ask deeper, harder questions, and in asking those things, um, to show the fullness of the beauty of uh, of our faith tradition um, in general, but obviously you know with spe- specifics towards African American Christianity. So I hope it's a book that just helps people one um, read these authors and and read them better, but read them uh, and read them better in a way that enriches our discipleship in the world. World.
2: yeah and are you doing butler whitehead like are you going up
1: no. i'm not i'm i'm focused 20th century yeah so so the the, the classic the classic people that I, that I feel like i personally kind of have engaged with and know the best um and so you know maybe uh, yeah maybe if if this turns out okay and is fruitful for people maybe that would be you know another time around would be to work with yeah. some more modern, more uh, immediate contemporary authors
2: very cool very cool well thank you for spending the time i really appreciate you you know taking out of time your church schedule your real life
1: (laughs) no i'm just it's an honor great great to talk with you on these things and really um yeah really love your work and really excited for for your book to enter into the world
2: thank you i look forward to promoting yours it's gonna be fun
1: well great to connect with you thanks so much
2: This podcast is sponsored by Brazos Press. Brazos Press publishes books that creatively draw upon the riches of the Christian story to deepen our understanding of God's world and inspire faithful reflection and engagement. A Brazos Press book that I recommend is On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books by Karen Swallow Pryor. In the book, Pryor helps readers learn to love life, literature, and God through their encounter with great writing. Get 40% off and free shipping at bakerbookhouse.com with code